So greetings, folks. Welcome, one and all. Uh, we are welcome to uh, the Council for British Research in the Levant's uh, latest webinar today, which is entitled Palestinian Rituals of Identity, the Prophet Moses Festival in Jerusalem from 1850 to 1948 by Professor Awad Halabi. The Council for British Research in the Levant is an independent UK research charity and membership organization that exists to conduct and support and promote humanities and social science research on the Levant and Levantine Middle East. We are part of the British Academy's International Research Institutes, of which there are seven, and uh, we have over a hundred year history in the region with offices in London, Amman, and Jerusalem. Today's webinar is being hosted from the Jerusalem branch of uh, the CBRL, which is also known as the Kenyan Institute. And I'm happy to also say that Dr. Halabi himself is actually located in the Institute today. I, I must um, put out there that we apologize to him for being unable to host a public lecture where we would be able to host people on our premises because the audiovisual hybrid nature of our infrastructure was not fully uh, finished yet, but we're happy to have this webinar and uh, be in contact with everybody out there on the World Wide Web. Uh, in fact, there were almost 60 different signups today from all over the world, so we're very excited that there is such interest out there for this topic, which I myself am actually very looking forward to because I think this is an under-researched uh, history of, uh, or per a period of Palestinian history that needs to be understood better. So I'm very much looking forward to that uh, today. Uh, we hope you enjoy today's webinar. Dr. Halabi is an associate professor in the Department of History at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio, in the United States. And he teaches classes in uh, Middle Eastern history. He's also the coordinator of the Minor and Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies and has published articles in edited books and in Jerusalem Quarterly and the Journal of Palestine Studies. He conducted his doctoral work at the University of Toronto and today's webinar is based on his forthcoming book, which is titled Palestinian Rituals of Identity, the Prophet Moses Festival in Jerusalem, 1850 to 1948, the same title of this webinar, which will be coming out from University of Texas Press in late 2022. So without further ado, uh, allow me to hand off to Dr. Awad Halabi, Palestinian Rituals of Identity, the Prophet Moses Festival in Jerusalem, 1850 to 1948. Please take it away, Awad. Thank you uh, very much, uh, Tafi. Thank you for this uh, invitation. Thank you to Dr. Tafi Haddad and uh, Claire Halliday for organizing this talk. And uh, thank you to the CBRL uh, for sponsoring this talk. Much of the research for this talk was conducted, as uh, Tafit said, when I was a resident at the Kenyan. So I appreciate the opportunity to uh, deliver this talk here in Jerusalem. And thank you all for joining uh, um, this uh, Zoom talk. And I will really do my best to keep it in the 40 minute time frame, stretching it just a bit, but I don't want to tax your patience. So I'd like to talk to you uh, today about my research on an Islamic festival in honor of the Prophet Moses held in Jerusalem during the year of late Ottoman 1850 to 1917 and British rule 1917 to 1948, which is the basis for my uh, book, for my forthcoming book. Let me give you a bit of background to the topic. Well, uh, I'm sure many of you are aware, Islam is an Abrahamic faith that recognizes the messages sent by earlier prophets recognized in the Judeo-Christian biblical traditions, such as those of the prophet Moses or, um, <clears throat> um, or the prophet Abraham. In this tradition of recognizing biblical figures, a religious tradition emerged of venerating their tombs, such as the tomb of Abraham in Hebron or of revered biblical figures and of Quranic figures, as well as tombs of Sufis, such as this one in Southern Morocco. These tombs were recognized as sacred places to perform pilgrimage, ziyarah, where um, a pilgrim would seek blessing, the barakah of the entombed. 
many of these larger shrines also held annual festivals known as mules or mausa, uh, honoring the sacred figure, becoming a large celebration attracting pilgrims from larger cities and the rural areas, both men and women. This is the, lar uh, the larger context I study, the 13th century shrine dedicated to the tomb of the prophet Moses, Nebi Musa in the Islamic tradition, located eight miles southwest of Jericho. And this is the aerial view of it. And uh, here is Jericho, if you're not as familiar with it. Uh, Moses is the most mentioned figure, human figure in the Quran. And there are multiple sites that, <clears throat> uh, that claim to be the tomb of Moses. But the Jericho shrine would become the most famous after the powerful Egyptian Mamluk ruler Sultan Baibas founded the shrine in 1269. At first, there was just a dome over the tomb and an adjoining mosque. That largest uh, green dome uh, is where the tomb of Moses is located and the adjoining green domes are where the mosque is located. Later, the shrine expanded and it became the site of traditional worship. Traditional worship mostly means where um, uh, consisted of pilgrims, uh, mostly from Jerusalem and the southern uh, um, uh, uh, parts, areas of south of Jerusalem and south of Palestine, uh, the Palestine southern regions, arriving to the shrine and engaging in acts of worship with minimal oversight from religious officials. These popular forms of devotion included venerating the tomb of Moses, lighting votive candles there, touching the sacred covering of the tomb. This is an era when the boundaries between what is referred to as popular Islam and official Islam were blurred. Uh, members of the ulama, the Islamic religious scholars, worshiped alongside and participated in the same rituals as villagers, both men and women, Bedouin, Sufis, um, all together. My focus though is how is on how a modern official fest festival was established in the mid 19th century during the late Ottoman era and an era of British rule in Palestine. I argue that sacred spaces and pilgrimage centers, centers are arenas of competing discourses. I study how the participants of the festival from 1850 to 1948 those from more powerful social classes, such as Ottoman officials, urban notables, and after World War I, Arab nationalist leaders, British colonial officials, and those with more limited political influence, such as younger Arab activists, Palestinian peasants, women, Bedouin, Sufis. Each of them attempted in their own way to structure the symbols of the ceremony, the symbolic order of the ceremonies. What are these symbols? These symbols that each group sought to control included the rhetoric projected at the festival, the, the ritual performances, the images projected, the participation of pilgrims, and the direction of processional groups. By ordering the symbols of the celebrations, each social group attempted to define how they understood a range of social and political messages about modernity, identity, politics, Islam, gender issues, and colonialism. This is the larger context uh, of this study. Um, and, and in the mid-19th century, um, the, the larger context in, in the mid-19th century is when the Ottoman state initiated new modern reforms, introducing secular laws, um, advancing Western technology as political leaders, Ottoman leaders and the elite began donning Western fashion and sending their children to schools based on a Western education. These modern reforms allowed the Ottoman state to collect taxes more widely, conduct censuses and recruit soldiers, and especially to impose the authority of the Ottoman state and urban officials over rural people. And in the 1860s, the Ottoman state also established Jerusalem's first municipal council. The newly formed Jerusalem Municipal Council took control of the festival and transformed it from a traditional celebration 
at the Prophet Moses Shrine into an official ceremony located and based in Jerusalem. Palestinians today may have a memory of the festival as a great nationalist celebration, a time when Palestinians from throughout the country convened in Jerusalem, raising their village and town banners um, and shouting slogans against the British and Zionists. Or they may be familiar with uh, the story that Salah Adin founded the festival after conquering Jerusalem in 1187 as a way to assemble Muslims in Jerusalem to protect the city when many Christians are celebrating Easter. But Jerusalem never had an association with the festival until the Jer Jerusalem's municipality initiated these changes in the mid 19th century. The first change, the first changes introduced to the modern ceremonies required pilgrims to be organized as contingents, termed mokit, to gather first in Jerusalem. They entered Jerusalem raising um, their village and town banners led by Sufis playing drums and, and playing cymbals, crying out religious and folk ballads. Each contingent would also conform to a set uh, schedule and route where uh, the Nablus pilgrims in yellow uh, entered through the Damascus gate a week before Orthodox uh, Good Friday. And the Nablus contingent entered on Orthodox Palm Sunday. Um, the uh, uh, Islamic tradition and the Arabs of the Levant often tied religious holidays to the fixed Christian solar calendar, especially the Julian uh, calendar of the Eastern churches. <clears throat> and so it wasn't unfamiliar dating back to the early uh, years of the, of the festival in the 16th century to have the festival conform to the Orthodox uh, Easter calendar. The new rituals Jerusalem's municipal council introduced were really a symbolic way to express the new authority of the urban notables in the Ottoman state in the modern era. The municipal councils, councillors and the Ottoman officials had become the impresarios of the new festival, choreographing new ritual actors, such as the Jerusalem mayor and the Ottoman governor, and assigning notable families and religious officials new ritual roles and duties. For example, high-ranking Ottoman officials joined members of Jerusalem's elite and religious authorities in new and newly invented rites, such as uh, uh, unfurling the sacred banner of the prophet Moses. Municipal officials also, um, or, or the Ottoman military band, uh, escorting the pilgrims as they entered and exited the holy city or that they set up a tent on a high point on the road to Jericho or Ras al-Amud, where religious officials led prayers and blessed the pilgrims and banners and where the Ottoman um, military band uh, also escorted them. Clearly, the festival was no longer just a religious affair, but a civic concern or an example of civic, uh, civil religion where civil, uh, civic officials like the mayor and the Jerusalem notables, the Ottoman governor and the Ottoman military band were able to participate and even lead a religious celebration. The new uh, uh, ceremonies in Jerusalem uh, did not stress the popular veneration of Moses at the shrine. Rather, they upheld a new social order and culture of late Ottoman Jerusalem, that the modern Ottoman state would continue to respect traditional Islamic culture in an era of modern secular reforms. Um, <clears throat> in many ways, the peasants and Bedouin pilgrims had been transformed into an audience uh, in where uh, they were there to validate the some symbols that the main ritual actors, the elite, projected. In the role of an audience, the pilgrims were there um, 
uh, to validate these messages, or in the words of the founder of the modern Olympics, the crowd has a part to play, a part of, consecrate, of consecration, meaning they were there to fulfill and validate the messages of the festival organizers. After <clears throat> uh, Britain occupied Palestine in 1917, the Prophet Moses festival continued to change as new groups attempted to order its symbols and rhetoric to promote their unique, their own unique agendas. The British colonial rulers knew they faced opposition and discontent from Palestine's Arab, Muslim, and Christian populations for supporting the creation of a Jewish homeland in Palestine, <clears throat> uh, despite the Jewish population forming 10% of the country. As a tactic, as a tactic uh, to appear as respectful to Palestine's Islamic culture, British colonial officials appropriated the duties the previous Ottoman officials used to perform, used to perform at the festival, such as leading the pilgrims uh, with a marching band. In the first Moses uh, uh, festival celebrated under British rule, Ronald Storrs, the British governor of Jerusalem, was the first to encourage British participation to the same extent as the Ottomans had once performed. As he said, the festival exposed a dilemma, for it marked the end of 400 years of Ottoman rule in Jerusalem. Enthusiastically, stores encouraged the army to provide gun salutes as the pilgrims exited the Haram al-Sharif. He collected a regimental band to lead the ceremony, and he proudly boasted that the Mutasarid, the Ottoman governor's duties, I fulfilled myself. Storr's approach to the festival resembled what the religious scholar Jonathan Z. Smith said about the Babylonian slapping ceremony, which Smith argues was held at a time of foreign occupation in Babylon. At this uh, Akitu, uh, a slapping ceremony during the Akitu festival, the right of, of the uh, ceremoniously slapping the king by the high priest attempted to breach the incongruity of a people's ideals, native kingship that rules in cosmic harmony with the gods and the historical realities of foreign rulers on the throne and the potential for cosmic chaos. In questions, the high priest asked the king as he, uh, as he was being slapped, uh, as the king was being slapped, the king answered in the negative. I did not destroy Babylon. I did not forget its rights. The ritual reconciled the ideal of native kingship with the reality of foreign rule. Through a similar act of ritual dissimulation, <clears throat> uh, British participation helped to ease the contradiction between the independent Arabs in Palestine sought from the reality of British occupation, embodied in stores saying, the Mutasharif's duties I fulfilled myself. Actually, there is this great, um, <clears throat> this great uh, um, film, uh, filmed by the British military, which shows the first uh, festival uh, in uh, 1918. And um, it's with the Imperial War Museum. And uh, you can email me if you want uh, a full citation to it. But you're going to see here stores uh, entering the uh, Sharia court. And the, uh, here's the Qadi uh, saluting him, the judge. And here's the mayor, Musa Qasim al Husseini. They're going to present him the sacred banners just as they did the Ottoman governor. So uh, of Jerusalem, so Stores is taking over this role, and you can kind of get the sense of the uh, anxiety, uh, nervousness of um, uh, of presenting of him being included, really, in the first time of British officials include is is participating in an Islamic ceremony. This is only uh, four months after the uh, beginning of British rule, and they're still fighting in Palestine in the north. Um, at this time. So uh, this is a very kind of nervous era. And you see here stores, he's going to place the, uh, uh, the, the sacred banners on the stage. And uh, just as the Ottoman governor, if I had time, 
you should really try to watch this film. It's a remarkable piece that captures um, the, this festival and, and culture. Um, I, I want to continue, but I'm a little pressed um, for, um, for time. Um, and okay. But really, it's a it's a great um, it's a it's a great uh, 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 film. It's quite a valuable source. Well, <clears throat> in the era of British rule, another group, uh, other groups began to mobilize the symbols of the festival to promote a political agenda. Uh, one group was uh, Palestine's nationalist leaders, Arab nationalist leaders such as the Mufti of Jerusalem and Hajimin and Husseini, attempted to order the festival to highlight uh, his role as chief Islamic representative in the new state of Palestine. Now, the Nebi Musa festival wouldn't just be a festival mainly for the people of the Sanjak or the province of Jerusalem in the south, but for everyone in this uh, new country especially after the 1929 El Borat Western Wall violence, the Mufti began to invite pilgrims from throughout Palestine to participate in the Nebi Musa festival. They arrived from centers that are not uh, traditionally attended, such as the coastal and northern parts of Palestine. While the Mufti, Amin al-Husseini, uh, helped to nationalize the festival, he didn't invite pilgrims to diffuse an idea of nationhood, nor to assemble pilgrims with the intent to mobilize them against British colonialism and Zionism. Rather, he did it to secure his image as national leader at a time when other groups were threatening his and his family's monopoly over leading the Palestinian nationalist movement. This is why his supporters upheld his conservative brand of politics, denouncing Zionism, and um, while in nationalist chants, but avoiding any chance critical of the British or calling for violence. In fact, the Palestinian leadership regularly published in Arabic newspapers, bayans, uh, statements, calling on pilgrims to attend the festival peacefully and, avoided any, and avoiding any violence. After violence had erupted at the 1920 festival, killing um, four Jews and five Arabs, the British relied on the Arab leadership to quell any potential conflicts that could arise at the festival. And really, um, the, uh, the entire uh, raison d'etre of, of the Arab leadership was based on containing violence, that that was their role in the eyes of the British. There is actually another brief video that shows the episode of this, um, of when the violence erupts in 1920. And again, it's from a, a museum um, uh, available digitally uh, in Bristol. And I, I can give you a citation uh, uh, to that as well, or a link to it. The Mufti became the sinecure of attention at the festival, the center of attraction, appearing at the rear of the procession, bearing the revered Prophet Moses banner, Representatives of groups the Mufti controlled, such as the Supreme Muslim Council, greeted pilgrims, and pilgrims were instructed to pass his office at the Haram al-Sharif. But a younger generation of Arab nationalist activists also participated, hoping to promote their own version of identity and politics. Unlike the Mufti, these younger Arab nationalists didn't define identity to Palestine, solely, but to the larger Arab region. They also rejected the cautious approach to oppose British colonialism, calling for resistance against the British and Zionists. The anthems they chanted at the festival and the unauthorized speeches their supporters delivered, which they could be jailed and, um, for delivering. You had to be authorized to deliver a speech. Upheld an Arab identity, not solely a Palestinian identity and encouraged and incited violent resistance and militancy rather than diplomacy that the elite nationalist leaders promoted. The youth played on familiar Nahda, Arab Renaissance themes of the late 19th century. Uh, Nahda themes of Arab culture, 
identity and a fallen Arab civilization that demanded Arabs rouse themselves from this stupor. The chants at the festival made repeated references to dignified Arabs, our esteemed glory, the Arab glory, our, uh, our nobility, Arab uh, pride was personified as lions. Another, uh, other chants demanded, one chant, for example, demanded, O sons of nation, Beni and Altan, uh, arise from continuous sleep and demand glory. The names the youth groups gave to their scouting troops that participated in the festival in the 1930s reflected their ideals of championing an Arab identity and resistance. The names the youth chose uh, for their troops championed uh, Islamic fighters such as Saladin resisting the Crusades or contemporary political leaders such as King Ghazi I of Iraq, who was one of the few leaders of an independent Arab state, as well as names championing resistance uh, such as Al-Jihad, Holy Struggle, and the uh, uh, Mujahideen, the Troop of Holy Fighters. These scouting names reveal a younger generation turning to their faith and Arab culture to define a political agenda in contradistinction to the conservative approach of Palestine's Arab leadership. Peasants and Bedouin, the vast majority of the pilgrims, though, also defined the hegemonic messages of the elite. They focused the, their energies on the ritual activities at the shrine. At the shrine, pilgrims worshiped at the tomb, Sufis conducted mystical performances, and families celebrated the circumcision of young boys. Families attended with children and enjoyed a joyous few days at the shrine. Unlike the rituals in Jerusalem, there, were no, there was no uh, division between elite and pilgrims. Really, the new modern ceremonies are where those distinction between popular and official, elite and, uh, and popular uh, Islam are created. Nor are there, there are few divisions between men and women, where women could join Sufi uh, dances, chant religious eulogies, and play musical instruments. The commitment villagers had to participating at the festival could outweigh their interest in joining the larger nationalist processions in Jerusalem. There are periodic episodes from the 1930s when pilgrims defied being forced to march in Jerusalem as part of the larger nationalist processions. Rather, they insisted on marching as part of, uh, of villagers identifying themselves as villagers, raising their village bend. In 1931, <clears throat> in 1931, when the British barred the village of Ain Karim from marching as their own separate Malkit contingent, raising their own village banner, the villagers boycotted the closing ceremonies. Uh, even though they were given the opportunity to join with their village banners in the larger uh, processions in Jerusalem, but they would have been kind of lost in those larger ones. They wanted to participate just on their own. The Philistine Arabic newspaper correspondent remarked, the villagers resented that they were not permitted to go out with their banners and their own parade. While they could still have joined other pilgrims in one national congregation, they instead chose to exercise a more familiar sentiment, which, which was to identify as villagers. And I, uh, I argue that villagers maintained these local identities because the national framework, the national paradigm couldn't protect them against British colonialism, Zionism, and market capitalism. It couldn't protect their hold on their land. It couldn't protect their uh, ability to um, sell their rural produce. So they were, uh, they had to uh, um, continue to rely on local identities um, to resist, um, um, to resist the threats to their access to land and their livelihood by British colonialism, Zionism, and uh, market capitalism. 
Another interesting aspect of rural participation is of rural women. In Jerusalem, they attended as spectators in the modern festival. At the shrine, they worship as pilgrims. When I first began the study, I assumed women visited the shrine to escape the patriarchal environments um, uh, they were living in and that they saw greater freedom of the convivial atmosphere at the shrine that the shrine provided. Uh, Ottoman soldier Ehsan Turjaman, who was stationed in Jerusalem during World War I, echoed this sentiment. Upon seeing women congregating at the Haram al-Sharif for the 1915 uh, festival, uh, Prophet Moses festival, he bemoaned how they yearned to attend, to, as he said, to be free of the pressures of their husbands and homes. Yet women attended along with uh, members of their tribe or village, with many accounts highlighting a little segregation between men and women, enjoying a convivial, joyous celebration where they could partake in folk, folk traditions, singing and dancing. And they participated as pilgrims seeking blessings of the tomb of Moses to heal a sick child or prayers uh, for overcoming infertility. They would often be accused of cutting out uh, the, the sacred banner of Moses so they could bring that back home um, uh, to bless the, uh, their children. The gender relations they conducted at the shrines and the forms of spiritual worship were no different than what they practiced in their home village or tribe. Visiting the, the Prophet Moses shrine was not as an escape from patriarchy, but it reaffirmed how they regularly interacted with the men of their village or tribe and how they worshiped regularly at shrines in their local community. The shrine and festival was not a liminal space separate from the real or profane world. It was an extension of what they regularly, how they regularly encountered or uh, practiced uh, their religious traditions and engaged in, in gender relations. Very briefly, uh, I want to discuss what uh, happens to the festival after the night after 1948, as the uh, shrine fell under the administration of Jordan and then Israel, and then uh, coming under the authority of the Palestine Authority in 1994. Both Jordan and Israel regarded the festival as a militant expression of Palestinian nationalism and banned large celebrations at the shrine in, at the shrine and in Jerusalem. Actually, the British in 1939 banned, um, really uh, curtailed and um, limited and truncated uh, celebrations in Jerusalem. And they, they barred any of the large uh, processions into the city. So that signature feature um, that uh, signature feature of everyone uh, entering the city and leaving the city were, was now um, eliminated. And then, uh, so it was already con uh, curtailed by 1936, um, by 1939. And the, uh, the Jordanians and the Israelis uh, curtailed it further. The festival, though, was revived in the 1990s under uh, the rule of the Palestine Authority who uh, attempted really to revive a memory of the festival as an emblem of Palestinian nationalism. Yet, even here again, we continue to see the distinction between official leaders who wish to make the festival a political statement and pilgrims who see the festival as an opportunity to practice mystical forms of Islam or focus on the veneration of the tomb. This strong nationalist identity at the festival appeared through the scouts who arrived from all over the West Bank, um, as well as political speeches uh, that, stress, um, uh, that stress the Palestine uh, Authority rhetoric of a two-state uh, solution or a state in Palestine, with Jerusalem as its capital, adhering to the model of a two-state two solution, appearances of the Palestinian flag, even regular attendance of Abu Naftala, the Archbishop, the Orthodox Bishop of Sebastia, uh, evoke a multi-confessional 
Palestinian identity that is culturally uh, Arab and inclusive of its Christian minorities. Yet the Sufi or Islamic mystical orders who had long enjoyed worshiping at the shrine um, um, continued to focus on their, on their religious uh, pursuits. The, the Sufis were largely uninterested in these speeches and instead focused on worshiping in a common devotional way, playing music and chanting and evoking God's name and dhikr ceremonies in close proximity to the tomb of Moses. This proximity uh, to the tomb represents the essence of pilgrimage, needing to remain as close as possible to Moses' tomb, the source of barakah, something that could not be derived from speeches, but only from esoteric spiritual pursuits. They performed these Sufic rituals unconcerned about the speeches and performing them directly in the mosque, where you can see other uh, Muslims even were unfamiliar with these practices and took interest in them. So, um, I, uh, Tafid, you'll let me know if you can't hear it, but it should be. Uh, here they are performing it. <laughs> hear that well thank you yes indeed okay okay and this is inside the mosque interesting is that you could tell other Muslim worshippers or pilgrims who came uh, were unfamiliar with, with these uh, practices and, um, and, and took uh, some uh, a great interest in, in watching them. Um, <clears throat> another aspect of this division between the worship of pilgrims and the official uh, uh, ceremonies led by the uh, Palestine Authority was the devotion more rural women displayed. Women often touched the tomb, touched the sacred banners, believing these sacred objects possessed barakah. Other women performed folk dances that, um, uh, that was to some um, considered uh, uh, inappropriate. In the days before the festival, I heard one Islamic official instruct the guards of the shrine to prevent women from praying in front of the tomb of Moses, something he described as a jahli practice, a pre-Islamic practice, antithetical uh, in Islam for praying to a human rather to God alone. In fact, when I was there a couple days later, I saw one woman attempting to pray in front of the tomb. She began to pray, which upset some of the pilgrims. And you see her here praying, and I happened to capture the video of it, and you can hear one woman saying to her, Mappy, meaning there's none of that here. So uh, uh, clearly not something other people uh, shared. Quickly, recently the Turkish government has funded renovations at the shrine 
the in, in the bid that the Turkish President Erdogan has made uh, to appeal to a Muslim audience, as the activities of the shrine now include Turkish whirling dervishes and troops replicating Janissary bands. So we can see through these examples after 1948 that they reveal throughout its long history, the Nebi Musa festival has emerged as one scholar of ritual rights, a symbolic system created in history to meet the changing historical concerns of its participants and organizers. Um, thank you very much for uh, being patient in an almost a 45 minute um, presentation, um, but, and thank you for your attention. Well, thank you, uh, Doctor. Uh, that was Doctor Awad Halabi uh, speaking about the Nebi Musa festival in its early days, and actually he brought us up to uh, the contemporary period. And I'd like to really congratulate him for uh, really providing a very well organized, well researched, and very immersive experience in this festival, which may not be so familiar to folks, and uh, including those who who study Palestine today. So. I'd like to thank him for that. Uh, this is probably a minor theme in, in, in your, your, your talk, but I just wanted a, a bit of clarification on it because there were a lot of concepts there that were quite um, densely put together when you speak about the, the slapping festival or the yeah. slapping rites. Can you clarify uh, what, what were you were getting at there? Because uh, it just went a little bit over my head. I didn't quite, I was okay. a bit astonished by the it. The so slapping ceremony is a rite that was conducted when Babylon was under foreign rule. And for the Babylonians, it was a cause of the potential for cosmic chaos, that there would be a foreign king ruling. And so the slapping ceremony, the priest asks the king questions. Did you allow the walls to be breached? And he would slap him and the king would reply, I did not allow the walls to be breached. Did you uh, um, uh, allow others, uh, armies to enter our land? I did not allow armies to enter the land. So it was a way to reconcile that, uh, uh, th that contradiction between the ideal and the reality. And it was a ritual to say, no, this is the reality. Um, uh, don't, even though you're not meeting the ideal, this is, uh, um, uh, we want to make it appear that this is, um, uh, that it, that to make it appear uh, palatable and acceptable uh, in a way. And so that's what it, it tried to reconcile those um, contradictions between ideal and reality. And so I evoke it at the time uh, at the, uh, Ronald Storr says he realized that at the uh, Ras and Amut pavilion, it would show everyone that 400 years of Ottoman rule had ended. There wouldn't be a greater public expression of the end of Ottoman rule than at the Ras and Amut pavilion. And so he said, we need to get involved and to make the, to uh, uh, address that the ideal was Arab independence and Islamic rule but the reality is foreign Christian European rule. Mm -hmm. And so by joining the ceremonies, they, uh, they breach those contradictions. And really that's what a lot of rituals try to accomplish. As one uh, scholar of ritual says, ritual says, look at this, this is the way it should be, not the reality. Right. Well, certainly a strong feature of your presentation is, is the, the way in which this ritual becomes the space for uh, attempts by different powers and parties to uh, sort of uh, ride the backs of and, and, and utilize the powers that be uh, there. While at the same time, you're also saying that there's a lot of uh, code uh, parallel worlds actually going on there. Uh, so not everybody, everyone is going there with their own agendas, while those in power and throughout history are, are trying to sort of ride, ride the horse of this. And I think you were very effective in showing Ottoman, British, and, and you actually, your research doesn't go beyond the 48 period, but you certainly hint to that when you speak to even how in contemporary times, the, the, the Turkish, uh, contemporary Turkish state is actually actively uh, engaged in this ceremony. So 
um, you know, uh, the ceremony is, uh, the tomb, Nabi Musa tomb is actually got in the news about a year ago. Yeah. Uh, and this is the, what, what, what the way it got into the news most recently for our audience members was a fairly well-known Palestinian young DJ, uh, techno yeah. DJ who, who made her name on the boiler room, which is apparently a very big uh, techno uh, scene. Uh, uh, apparently she was trying to film some kind of uh, video performance at the Nebi Musa uh, uh, site and uh, locals who were in the area heard about it and um, apparently and, and shut it down, believing that there was some sort of rave or something going on in this site. And they trashed a lot of the elements of, uh, you know, her equipment, I guess, as well as some of that renovation that had been done at the, by the, I'm not sure by the Turks, but certainly by the Palestinian Authority. And it came to light afterwards that the Palestinian Authority itself had actually attempted to sort of create some kind of, um, you know, sort of a pilgrimage hostel or even a tourism yes. site about yes. out, out right. of it. Uh, I'd love to hear what you have to say about that event. If you, I mean, obviously it's a little unrelated to what you spoke about, but it's no. a bit more that, that, that sort of hooks us into the more contemporary history. Go ahead. I'm sorry that I forget her name, uh, it's a, um, but uh, she was like thrown under the buses. <laughs> so I would describe it, she was recruited uh, hired by the PA to uh, um, to uh, make this promotional video, and they were, as you say, they were going to uh, uh, turn to uh, part of the uh, shrine could be turned into a kind of um, hospice or hostel, and this was part of the promotional video. But yet, it was local young men who uh, thought that it was a rave and that it was something very haram, and so. They, they, they attacked it, they, they uh, congregated and, and, and uh, um, trashed the furniture uh, that, that they had bought to promote this, uh, uh, this as a tourist site and, and provide new accommodations. And um, uh, sadly, she was blamed and she was even arrested, though I think arrested to um, detain for her own safety. So it's very uh, Sama Abdul Sama Abdul Hadi. Thank you, Sarah. Um, and it was very sad. Um, and the the thing is, the PA um, during the Nebi Musa festival that they organize regularly hold more quote unquote secular um, activities uh, there in terms of. Um, um, political speeches. It's not all religious, even certainly um, folk dances or uh, performances by other cultures and other um, dance troops. So um, they largely blamed her for this sure. event. Yeah. Um, can you actually clarify it? Because if oh, I'm not the local tribe, someone said, thank you very much. Okay. Yeah, I, well, th thanks for the input from folks. Is the actual site in, an, I believe it's in an area C, is that correct? Yeah, this is great. So the Which Palestinians- Explain please, yeah. Palestinians enter with their flag and Palestinian security will be there. But it's area C, which is under Israeli control and the area around it is uh, a military zone. So that's what has always, um, prevented pilgrims from going there freely. But uh, in, the, in the PA, in the Oslo Accords, one section of it um, grants permission to the Palestinians for certain religious sites to enter with their flag in defiance of regular area C regulations that would prevent Palestinians from raising their flags. So in a way, for the PA, it is a liminal space because it makes it appear like it's Palestinian territory, but it's really Area C, fully under Israeli control, only through the sufferance of the Israelis where they're given permission to, uh, uh, to, to raise their flag and to have security there. 
which is quite, a, quite an amazing thing if you think about it, simply like a building and a structure that is area C inside its walls, but everything around it is there, you know, it's yes. Israeli controlled and Israeli military area. And even area C is not supposed to have any Palestinian government presence there. But can we read from that a kind of attempt, some sort of continuity between uh, the past and the present and sort of using these sort of symbolic sites as places where uh, a kind of autonomy can be, or, or power can be performed, albeit one that might not be real. It's a ritual sleight of hand. It's a, it just, it's a, uh, a way to make it appear that the, the, no PA authority member is gonna get up to the podium and say, thank you to the Israelis for letting us raise our flag and, and enter with our uh, PA officials and, and talk about Jerusalem as our capital. Uh, that only exists because the Israelis permit them, but it is, uh, very much a strong PA Palestinian narrative um, and, and, and stressing the narrative of, of, that, of that nationalist movement, um, uh, but yet it, it doesn't fully acknowledge the reality they're living under. Well, thank you for the, those answers and putting that sort of extra bonus material <laughs> into your into your answers. So I'd like to transition into some of the questions that we've got. Uh, and a, a reminder, put them in the question and answer, but we have a couple now. Uh, the first one uh, comes from John Munayer, if I get the name correct, and he thanks you for the presentation and asks, to what extent did Christians and Jews participate in the festival? If they did take part, what type of dialogue arised from this? You know, it's really interesting. For me, Jerusalem's Christians and Jews are um, in the modern period as it becomes centered in Jerusalem, they become part of the audience. They are participating organically uh, as an audience watching the festival and, um, and really reveling in their Muslim neighbors attending and seeing. And there are many accounts of uh, uh, Jerusalem's Jewish and Christian Muslim, uh, uh, Jewish, Jerusalem's Jewish and Christian residents talking about how much they remember watching the celebrations, participating in them, sometimes marching in them, um, but uh, the Jewish residents sprinkling rose water on the, as the uh, Hebron pilgrims um, entered uh, the city and pass by the Jewish uh, quarter. Uh, in a way, the, the, many of the Muslim pilgrims were an audience because they were there to, to see, to validate what the uh, elite political leaders were propagating. Um, European um, consuls and European um, officials were there as a way to recognize that Jerusalem is really under the authority of the Ottomans at a time when it was under, uh, that the, we so many knew that it was, uh, that the uh, Europeans coveted uh, ruling Jerusalem. Uh, and a third audience is the native Arab, uh, Jewish and Christian populations of Jerusalem who remember it uh, fondly. And Christians would go on to be um, uh, involved with it um, uh, in, in many ways. Many times the Arab executive council or political leaders would invite Palestinian Christians to attend. Um, many times you hear stories of Christians marching with their Muslim neighbors from Hebron or Nablus. In one instance, the, uh, a speaker said, praises Salah Adin as the uh, starting the festival to protect Jerusalem. And the, the journalist tells us that the Christian neighbors of, uh, from Hebron who, who joined the procession cheered Salah Adin and that they defied this communal boundary between Christian and Muslim memory of, of Salah Adin, that he was there, um, he was part of their culture and, uh, as well. And the Christians participated so much, the British had to pass regulations that it was not permitted 
for non-Muslims to go to the Haram al-Sharif during certain religious holidays. In one instance, Khalil Sakakini was going to give a major speech at the Haram during the uh, festival, but the British barred him uh, non-Muslims from attending. Thank you for that answer. Uh, I'll, I'll comment that uh, the second question from Elizabeth Martin uh, actually echoes the similar question of wanting to ask you to shed light on the Christian. Uh, do you happen to know if Palestinian Christians visited the shrine on, on other days as well? And now and or in the past, and is the shrine of Nabi Busa a mixed shrine like some shrines of the Virgin Mary or St. George al-Khadr, which is near Bethlehem, of course? Largely uh, Christians, uh, native Palestinian Christians do not um, really re necessarily revere it as a site, as a holy site. Uh, it hasn't been promoted as such, uh, or it doesn't happen organically. Um, so um, uh, I think it's out of uh, respect to the Palestinian Christian population and the nearby uh, uh, shrines that are um, under the authority of uh, Bishop Atallah, or he's associated with it, um, uh, Atallah Hanna, that he's invited. Uh, but um, Palestinian, I think Christians uh, would revere the site of Mount Nebo uh, overlooking uh, the, uh, the Holy Land in Jordan, um, where Christian and Jewish traditions say that he, uh, that Moses, that's his final resting place before crossing, uh, only seeing it before he died, but not really widespread. El Hadar and, and uh, the Virgin Mary Shrine, um, they attract Muslims and Christians uh, together. They're very powerful sites of interaction between them. Yeah, well, thank you for those clarifications. Uh, and the last question, the previous question, not Elizabeth, but the one before, had actually asked about the, the question of uh, Jewish participation in the procession. And then your answer to Elizabeth right now also raised the question of uh, Mount Nebo. So, and we spoke previously about how this area is under the Palestinian Authority in a, in a, in a weird sort of dystopian sort of singular building area where they're allowed to sort of perform some sort of authority, but uh, without only because the Israelis allow them. But can you clarify uh, how, uh, I, I, how, I mean, Jewish communities and, I mean, I'm sure there's not one approach to this, but I, I imagine it's not recognized as the, official, the, the place where Moses is, is buried by the majority streams of, of, of Judaism, no? And obviously later on how the state dealt with it. So, but that's another story of the state, but at least from, a, a, from the Jewish religious perspective, shall we say. From the Jewish religious perspective, theologically, Moses died in the desert without anyone knowing the site of his tomb, of his location, of his, of his death. And that's, that's largely the, the, theolo the, the Christian theology. And it is uh, a significant number of, of Muslim scholars as well, uh, who would say, um, you know, uh, who would say, we don't know where Moses died. According to the Torah, he uh, died without anyone knowing the site of his death. So Muslim scholars agreed with that. But Muslim scholars also um, talked about the site of Moses' tomb in Damascus, or the site of Moses' tomb in Erbil. Um, and so it was uh, Al-Harawi, uh, the Persian traveler of the uh, 12th century, if I, got, if I remember that correctly, uh, that uh, uh, Joseph uh, Mary has uh, translated. Uh, um, that, um, uh, uh, that book talks uh, uh, widely about different shrines and tombs of various saints and biblical figures. Um, so the Jewish tradition, even though it would say there, uh, his resting place is unknown, they, they uh, native Jewish uh, residents of Jerusalem um, honored it and, and participated in it, in it in a way that Salim Tamari talks about in his uh, book, I believe from, um, from mountain to sea of how 
um, and how, uh, uh, reflecting on what Wasif Jauharia, the one who, the musician of the late 19th, 20th century who left a memoir, talks about Jerusalem uh, in the modern period having these local um, public celebrations and they were expressions of um, communal identity and expressions of new civic identity. And so that's how uh, Christians and local Jews became involved because these were no longer just exclusively, um, uh, no longer just exclusively religious celebrations. They were civil, civic celebrations, incorporating political figures, secular political figures, and religious figures. In fact, the 1913 festival committee in uh, in Jerusalem included. Um, Figures such as the you know, chief engineer of the city, um, as well as the representatives, ex officio representatives of the uh, main Christian churches and uh, Jewish, uh, 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 Jewish community. They were all part of the committee organizing the festival. Gotcha. So, yeah. Thank you for that clarification. Uh, we've got a, a question from Martin O'Kane, who thanks you for a really fascinating talk and says, I want to ask, were there any particular Quranic texts that were commonly used or recited during these ceremonies? Uh, the one main one is the, the sobriquet of, of Moses, uh, Musa al-Kalim, uh, al Allah. Moses, he who spoke with God. And so that's, that Quranic verse appears on the banner of the prophet Moses with uh, the Shahada uh, on the reverse side. Actually, in the 16th century, one Ottoman Sultan um, sponsored a banner that said, uh, Musa Kaleem Allah. <laughs> Moses, the one who spoke with God. And so uh, that was a very powerful um, uh, uh, text that was uh, uh, repeated in, in banners. And, um, and um, uh, that was the main one. What is it, what I think is also interesting, there aren't really any like shrines, uh, other Muslim shrines, there are hagiographies. Hagi uh, stories celebrating these saints. There really isn't necessarily those stories circulating, but there are always stories circulating of miracles performed at the shrine or apparitions of a ghostly figure appearing or if um, um, inappropriate uh, interaction between a man and woman that would shake the ground or the, it would stir whirlwinds at the shrine and it could be very cold at night and windy as well. So those association of karamat and miracles and, and wonders as they're known um, circulated widely. So just to clarify here, Musa Kalim Allah, the man for the Musa who speaks, the one who speaks with God, are the, what are, it, it's a kind of invocation for it's, it's what he's known as. That's his title. Right. From, taken from the Quran. Sure. But it, so for those attending the procession, okay, of course, there's the civic and the, the political dimensions to it, but the deeper religious signification, particularly for the sophistic tendencies, the mystical tendencies who would adopt such an approach, which is not necessarily mainstream, but uh, uh, what are they trying to get at at Musa's tomb? You see? Uh, the baraka. The baraka. The, the, it, it emits uh, uh, baraka, blessings. And so to be uh, the, the, the heightened point of that baraka is during uh, uh, an annual mulet, uh, maulet, uh, the time of their death, or the, the festival that recognizes their, their honors their death. And so it, um, it, it's this the source of Baraka, gaining that proximity to the two. And um, even though there are many accounts of uh, coffee houses set up, even uh, puppet shows at the shrine, uh, 
the Bedouin arts of falconry even um, and horsemanship. Uh, so many accounts tell us that once uh, prayers were conducted or Sufi rituals were conducted, people watched uh, respectfully or, or participated widely. So that it was a, uh, uh, this sacred space as a source of barakah. And this, the, the covering, the sitta, the covering of the tomb was itself a source of barakah, where women fashion it, cut pieces of it, fashion it into a cup for their sick children to drink from. You've been listening to Dr. Awad Halabi, who is uh, speaking on the topic of Palestinian rituals of identity, the Prophet Moses Festival in Jerusalem from 1850 to 1948. I would, I would like to really thank you for such a rich and fascinating uh, you know, talk today that uh, shed a lot of light, a lot of new and interesting topics. You were able to maintain 100% participation from start to begin, beginning, thank which you. is <laughs> a major feat in this age of uh, you know, Zoominars and uh, Zoominar fatigue, shall we say. So yes. uh, fantastic. I thought everyone years. had it up to here with Zoom. We, uh, we all are, but to some extent, there are some great benefits of it because we had this great discussion and also it will be preserving this for history's sake. But please don't allow that to uh, prevent the folks in the audience from picking up the book that will be coming out at the end of this year. That will be the Palestinian Rituals of Identity, the Prophet Moses Festival in Jerusalem, 1850 to 1948 from the University of Texas Press. Uh, you've been listening to a webinar from the Council for British Research in the Levant. Please check our website out. That's at cbrl.ac.uk, where you can uh, sign up to our mailing list, see what we do. Uh, so thank you for all audience members. And of course, thank you to Dr. Halabi himself for uh, this fascinating talk. And thank you today for your audience for hanging out today. And please have a very pleasant evening. Take care, folks. Thank you again, Sophie, and thank you to everyone for their kind comments and staying on board. <laughs> Bless up. All the best, folks. Take and care. Thank you, Claire. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. Yes, I'll indeed. see you soon. <laughs> indeed. Ciao, ciao. Bye bye.